You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Strong numbers out of the U.S. Is it supportive of equities? Also, it seems like momentum has shifted away from value and toward growth. Is that true or is it not true? And behind that shift are bond yields. Is this a short squeeze in the making? Jim Bianco, president of Bianco Research, is with us to break that all down. Welcome back to the Real Vision Daily Briefing, Jim. Well, thanks for having me. You know, we're supposed to, it says I'm in, in Washington, D.C., but actually I'm not. I'm really in Bethesda. I'm, I'm just outside D.C. Are you really in Chicago right now? Yes, I am really in Chicago. I could walk to Wrigley Field in about 15 minutes when I say I'm in Chicago. Oh, yeah. Very nice. Very nice. Well, you know, it's, it's, it, speaking of nice, uh, we had some nice numbers that came out this morning. Very strong numbers across the board. I think there were three or four things I was looking at. There was the Philly Fed, the Empire uh, Manufacturing. There was the jobless claims number. And uh, th then there was a fourth number. Uh, I'm forgetting off the top of my head now. Uh, uh, they were oh, it was retail sales. They were all very positive, uh, ahead of expectations. Very strong numbers. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean the the two that really jumped out at us was the blowout in retail sales at nine point eight percent that just you know stunned everybody. I guess it shouldn't have because this was the March retail sales number and this was the month that the fourteen hundred dollars stimulus checks went out. But nevertheless, it did. And the other big one I thought was the claims number, you know, for the first time, basically since the pandemic, I know you follow this closer than me, we actually printed below the old 2009 high in the number of claims made forever that 667 high, we had printed every single 667,000 jobless claims, we printed every single month above that until this week. So we've got a new 13 month low in claims as well, too. So that was a, another good number. So yeah, any way you slice and dice the economic data, it's been very good. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I think that that claims number. When I think about claims, uh, you know, they've been high and they're still relatively high, five hundred some thousand uh, a year into this. You know, the way I'm looking at it, especially when you look at the monster number that we had on the jobs uh, number this month, is that really what we're seeing is a churn in, uh, behind the scenes, that this has been a extremely difficult period. Uh, we're still finding our footing. And even though, um, you know, we're still adding jobs, we're, we're still getting back to square one. We're really far away from where we were. Uh, at the beginning of 2020. And so even though we're losing lots of jobs for, to initial claims every week, we're m winning back a lot more. And, and overall, w there's a, a positive view on the economy. Would you say that that's a fair assessment? Yes. It, if I was to maybe draw a little finer point, you said we were adding jobs. I would say we're restoring jobs. You know, right. so that basically we're, we're getting back jobs that we had 13 or 14 months ago. Uh, whether or not we're actually growing, 
Um, obviously, we are, but how much we're growing is a little more difficult to say because in the process of reopening, we're just recovering what we've lost. And that seems to be a lot of the churn that we've been seeing in the jobs market as well, too. And it's become a very complex job market, too. You know, with the extra $300 a week in unemployment at the lower end, I know it's been very difficult for people that um, to get people back to work when they're getting paid so much to not work um, at this point. Maybe that changes once these um, benefits expire or maybe attitudes change later on this summer. But there is a tremendous amount, and I thought you put it well, churn in this in this economy and especially in the jobs market, that uh, people are kind of coming and going at nearly a record pace in terms of employment. Yes. You know, we're talking about the U.S. economy, but the numbers that we're all talking about, these were U.S. releases. Uh, how do you look at uh, Europe uh, in particular as compared to the U.S., given uh, what's going on there with the vaccine rollout and lockdowns and things of that nature? Well, Europe is definitely behind the U.S. I mean, our our numbers are down. I'm our infection numbers are down. Our vaccine numbers are up. Uh, as well, too. And so we're definitely way well ahead of where they are in Europe. Maybe the UK is a little bit different. They're closer to us than continental Europe. But their, their vaccines uh, rollouts have been much slower. They're picking up pace now, but they're still behind. And unfortunately, a lot of their um, cases, uh, infection cases, are starting to, starting to head north as well, too. Not as much as they are in say India or in Asia, and I don't know if you've seen those numbers, but holy cow, the numbers for infections in India and Asia are going absolutely vertical. And they're even talking today with the big spike of cases in Japan that the Summer Olympics are at risk right now. Um, and uh, they're up to 200,000 cases a day again in India as well too. So the world numbers are starting to head up higher as well. So. While the U.S. is getting closer to getting everybody vaccinated, the true reopening doesn't happen until you get herd immunity worldwide. That's a ways away. Uh, and, the, and the new case counts outside of the U.S., outside of the U.K., uh, outside of Israel, uh, these are three countries that have had very high um, in, uh, vaccine numbers, percentages of population vaccine. Um, the, the case counts are, are really quite worrisome outside of those countries. Yeah. And so how do you look at the economy over the, the global economy over the medium term, given that backdrop? You have the U.S., Israel, U.K., you mentioned in particular, uh, ready to move on to the next phase. But globally, we're not there yet. Uh, do you look at this as sort of like, OK, we'll get there eventually and then, you know, we'll have all that pent up demand, et cetera, et cetera. Or are there other complications behind the scenes there? <clears throat> no, I think there's. We're eventually going to get there, but there is a big complication that needs to be resolved. And that complication is the supply chain. Um, there is, I, we have a chart of it, hopefully we could throw it up there, but there is in the supply chain numbers, if you look at delivery times, they're the longest according to the regional Fed surveys in the ISM in 70 years, 70 years. In other words, what's happening in the economy is there's this giant demand for stuff and no one wants to raise their price because they're getting demand because we've been taught 
managers have been taught for the last 25 years, never raise your price. Because if you raise your price, you're on the second page of a Google search, lowest price, the highest price, you lose all your market share. So what you do is you sell it at that cheap price and then you tell them they have to wait, ration the product. Well, that has become so pervasive that the entire supply chain is now starting to sputter because everybody's selling you stuff you need in the supply chain, but you'll get it next month. You'll get it in six weeks. You won't get it tomorrow is what the problem is. Now, the way you fix the supply chain is you raise your prices. The supply demand is out of balance because the price is too low. You're, you're creating too much demand for the amount of supply that we have. Nobody wants to do that. So what I'm afraid of is when I see 70-year highs in vendor deliveries, when I see 70-year highs in rationing of the products, the next step, all that's left now, is to finally start raising your prices. And so while the economies of the world are moving forward, we're eventually going to get there. Don't worry about it. It's going to be reopened. It's going to be fine. We could be on the precipice of finally starting to see inflation come back. Uh, and if we finally see inflation come back, you can have two things be true at once. You can have the strong growth, plus you have inflation, which translates into very strong nominal growth. And that could really bother the bond market, although it's not bothering the bond market today. Yeah, and we'll get to that uh, at the end, I'm sure, because that's that's a big move. Uh, you know, uh, as you were saying, you were talking about supply shocks. In the back of my mind, as you know, I, I'm a, a cyclist, and I wrecked my bike, and now, and I'm, I looked for another bike. Uh, there were no bikes uh, equivalent to mine. I did eventually find one that was two years old. That was, it was new, but it, you know, it was the two year old model, uh, and I was able to get that at a discount, but nothing. Um, that was recent. And when you look out for cars, as an example, it's the same sort of thing that, uh, you know, because of uh, semiconductor manufacturing and chips uh, being in shortage, GM is not uh, going full throttle in their North American plants. And actually, you might be able to say that there's a de facto price hike because the average discounts in the American auto market are lower than they were in 2020 or 2019. And that's that's sort of a stealth, uh, you know, uh, price raise. Is that the beginning of what you're talking about? <clears throat> yeah, I think so. I mean, to use to use your two examples there, both I'm a cyclist, too, and that's something we share in common. And if you look at some of the websites where they sell used bikes, they're more expensive than the new bikes. If you look at the Mannheim index of used car prices, it is absolutely booming right now. The average used car price is 22%, 22% higher than a year ago. Now, remember, a year ago was the bottom of the pandemic when the bottom dropped out of all the prices. So that's somewhat distorted by the base effect, but it's some, it's stunning what's happening. So. The new car manufacturers, the semiconductor companies, um, won't raise their prices. Uh, but instead, they're just telling they're telling the GMs and the Fords of the world, you have to wait on these components, which is bottlenecking their supply. So used cars are booming in price because people don't want to wait; they want a car now. They want a bike now. They go to the used car, they go to the used bike websites, and they buy them there as opposed to waiting for the new bikes. And so that's where I think we're starting to see 
the beginnings of, of that as it starts to factor in. Let me give you one other <clears throat> technical thing for everybody to put in the back of their mind. When it comes to inflation, there's two issues you have to remember about inflation. Number one, the BLS that calculates inflation used to send out thousands of price checkers. These are people that literally went to the stores and looked on the shelves and wrote down the prices on a clipboard to input into their system to figure out what the price of, of, of stuff is for the CPI and the PCE index. They stopped doing that a, a year ago because of the pandemic. Now they check the prices online or they call the stores because they're not allowed to go into the stores because of the pandemic. That's a series break. We now calculate it differently than we did a year ago. I'm not going to tell you definitively that means we're understating or overstating inflation. I'm just going to tell you that I've seen enough statistics that when you change your way you do things, you start getting different results. And so right. we're getting different we're getting different results. The second thing to keep in mind is there's a basket of stuff that we buy. That basket has, and the BLS has already admitted, this has undergone the most radical change in history. So to give one example is men's clothing. If you look at men's clothing, it says that there's a big deflation in men's clothing, D with a deflation. Why? Because the basket says that you and I, we buy a certain number of dress shirts and slacks and suits. We're not buying that stuff. And we buy in the basket says we buy less athletic wear, which is sweatpants. So the price of men's dress shirts has been falling. Well, we don't buy those. But the price of men's sweatpants has been rising. So you and I keep paying more and more and more for this stuff. But according to the BLS, the price of men's clothes keeps falling. And so they need to adjust the basket. But prior to the pandemic, the basket has never changed this quickly. So the old argument is there's only inflation in the stuff you want, not the stuff that they measure. And so that, that's what's also been going on when it comes to inflation as well, too, is that I, I, I question how the new methodology has changed the, uh, the measures. And what we're saying that we buy is no longer what we buy. We buy different stuff now because of the pandemic. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. That is a really interesting point because it reminds me of when we had the lockdown and we had the jobless claims numbers. Uh, I don't know if you remember this from a year ago, but I was saying that the way that we did the uh, seasonal adjustments was totally off because we had a, a step change up in the level and the you know we were using a multiplicative uh, seasonal adjustment. And lo and behold, you know, five or six months later, the the uh, uh, the Economics Bureau, uh, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics said, yes, uh, we screwed up. Uh, we're going to do it a different way now. And, and so they changed it to an arithmetic uh, method. So, I mean, this is the same kind of thing that you're talking about right now. Yeah, absolutely. I do remember that. And that's what happens a lot when you get kind of these these sharp changes in the economy, things change, things adjust. You know, my favorite 
you know, our favorite example from a year ago was the, the great toilet paper shortage, remember? And the reason you had the big toilet paper shortage was we were producing toilet paper and about half of it went into a commercial um, a commercial supply chain to supply restaurants and office buildings and stuff. And about half of it went to grocery stores. Well, in the early part, nobody was going to offices or restaurants. And there was like this glut of toilet paper in that supply chain. And we had people beating each other up in aisle six to try and get it in the grocery stores because we were running out of this stuff. And it took them a while to realize, hey, we got to redirect the supply chain now to the grocery stores because that's where all of the sales are going. So you get that kind of stuff, you know, happening all the time when you get into a severe situation. And we might be seeing the back end of that right now. And the back end of that is we are in the process of reopening this economy. And what people have asked me, what's the reopening going to be like? And the best answer I can give you is, in your mind, go back and remember what life was like in January 2020. Okay, it's not going to be that. It's going to be faster. It's going to be reopened. But it's going to be different. And I'm not exactly sure how it's going to be different. I don't know how anybody's going to be sure it's different. And the one example I will give you is commercial real estate. Uh, just before we started, I read two stories. Apollo Management is relocating some of their uh, staff from New York City to Florida. And Guggenheim Scott Miner is relocating from Los Angeles to Miami. We seem to be moving around all over the place. Those big office towers in Midtown Manhattan, what is their purpose? Why do we go to them? What do we do there? I know David um, David Solomon, excuse me, of the CEO of, of Goldman Sachs is demanding that everybody's got to get back to the office. You just reported a blowout quarter with everybody at home. They seem to be doing just fine at home. What is? The, I mean, I'm not saying that we never need to have an office, and I'm not saying that we don't need to have uh, human contact. We absolutely need that, and I want it just as much as everybody else. But do we need to go back from nine to five Monday through Friday? If the answer is no, and we only have to go back two or three days a week, there's a 50% vacancy now of Manhattan real estate. And commercial real estate and the ancillary businesses like the shops on the first floor and the restaurants on the first floor, that's a, that's a significant part of the economy. And that might not recover in a reopening while other parts of the economy might boom as well too. Yeah, you know, but for the time being, the, the strong numbers that we were talking about at the beginning seem to be powering forward earnings. That's what people are looking at. And they're sort of uh, not thinking about some of those problems that you're talking about. I, I, I'm looking at the charts, and I see that uh, tech has rallied big time off of its March uh, 2021 lows. And, uh, you know, we're back in a, in a period where NASDAQ uh, can make record highs. Uh, what are you seeing in the markets? Yeah, it, you know, on the earnings part, for starters, yes, a lot of people are looking at the reopening and going, this is going to power the earnings numbers forward. And the answer that I've always given is it better. Because right now, there's an expectation that earnings, uh, first quarter earnings, are going to be 25% higher then first quarter earnings last year, second quarter earnings are supposed to be somewhere around 55% higher than second quarter last year. Remember, that was the bottom of the, of the lockdown. And given all of this heady expectation for earnings growth, 
The forward PE on the S&P 500 or the S&P 500 with the next 12 months expectation of earnings is still in the mid 20s. That is a very, very high number. And so, you know, to use a track and field analogy, um, we're going to set the bar at eight feet. And I that's the world record for the high jump. And I expect everybody to jump over it. Uh, and maybe the, maybe these world-class athletes can jump over it, but that's a big ask. So yes, we are expecting big earnings, but we've already priced it in and we better get it. Anything that stumbles on that earnings thing could wind up being a problem. So far, the early signs, you know, a lot of the financials reported this week, there ain't no stumble. Everything seems to be... Um, you know, doing very, very well. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and, and, you know, when you say everything's doing well, I'm thinking about the market internals and some things are doing relatively better than others. You, you know, from November, it was uh, gro value over growth. It was industrials and cyclicals over non-cyclicals, banks over tech. But the Nasdaq is back big. We had Coinbase just the other day uh, list publicly. It seems like the momentum shifted, and it's much more of a growth over value momentum right now in the markets. Yeah, that definitely. The 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 thing about value versus growth is let's let's cut that a little finer too, and call it tech versus financials because tech is the biggest part of growth. And financials are the biggest part of value. And you can explain a lot of the value growth by tech financials, or I could explain it by interest rates. And that when interest rates, um, when interest rates are going up and financials, people look at financials and go, oh, fatter interest, net interest margins, this is good for the banks. They rally, and then we all say, oh, look at this value shift. Well, maybe it's really more about interest rates, is, is what it is. Now interest rates have peaked. And they're starting to come down, and all of a sudden, the financials are, even though they've reported decent numbers, are somewhat sucking wind here. Uh, especially like J.P. Morgan reported blowout numbers yesterday, and the stock was still down uh, as well too. So that's where I think we were, what we're seeing between the value growth proposition, and on that respect, when you when you draw it bigger. Uh, it makes a little bit more sense. The other thing to keep in mind about what's going on with value and growth is going into last fall, value had its worst underperformance relative to growth ever. By And some of the numbers go back to 1926. It had been a relentless underperformer. And what really drove it to those extremes last year was the collapse of energy. Now, when you get everything all twisted up into that kind of extreme, and you know you build up a lot of potential energy, when you unleash that, you get these unbelievable moves in the other direction. And you wonder if there was a really trend change. Well, there has to be a trend change. Look at how much uh, value has outperformed growth. Yeah, but look how much they underperformed in the years before. And that's might all you've been seeing. So what I'm leading up to here is count me as skeptical as that the value was nothing more than a trade, but the secular story is still growth is going to continue to be the dominant play, especially the tech side of that is going to continue to be the dominant play. Maybe the ARC stocks are not really going right now, but the QQQs um, uh, are starting to move. In fact, the NASDAQ 100 did make new highs in the last couple of days. So those stocks are definitely moving forward.
Right. Yeah. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. You know, when, when you look at the bonds, uh, I think the story, this goes into what you, uh, you were talking about in terms of the short squeeze. Uh, let me first say that, you know, when I look at the bonds, it was the weekend of uh, March the 5th to the 8th where we did not confirm uh, or, or we did confirm, rather, I should say, the move above 150. OK, so we confirmed the move above 150 that weekend. And literally since then, we've been in a trading range uh, between 150 and 175. We tried to hit the top. You know, we we tried to break out above. We missed it, failed it on the 18th. We failed again on the 30th of March. And now we're back at 153, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, we're taping this about 3 o'clock between 3 and 335. Uh, you know that's that that's not supportive of of bank stocks, not supportive of value. It makes a lot of sense what you're saying um, about the rotation. Given that, my, here's my question though: Given the inflation story that you're talking about, uh, is this just a short squeeze uh, that maybe you know over time we're going to see a, a re-rating? We're going to see. Yields go up again. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, I think it is a short squeeze. And, uh, Let's let's rewind all the way back to last month into March, which was only two weeks ago. Um, what was the one thing that everybody agreed upon two weeks ago? Bond yields were going up. Not only were bond yields going up, but the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, would give speeches and say, this is a good thing. You should want bond yields to go up because break out into a course of God bless America, because that means things are getting better. Higher bond yields are better. Well, problem with that story, first of all, is higher bond yields in and of themselves are neither good nor bad. It depends on why. If they're going up because of real growth or reflation, as I like to say, yeah, then they are good. If they're going up because of inflation, it's not such a good thing. So a month ago, everybody was ridiculously short bonds. We have another chart of that, hopefully, and that is there's a service called Consensus Inc., and they survey dozens of newsletter writers. And as of March 26, they only had 19% of their newsletter writers that were bullish on the bond market. That equaled an 18-year low. So all those people that said, of course, bond yields are going to go up. And so we so know that bond yields are going to go up. Even the Federal Reserve chairman admitted that they're only going to go up and that it's a good thing. We got everybody so bearish that we were destined for some kind of a short squeeze. Did I know it was going to be today and 10 basis points today? No, but I had a feeling that we were going to see something like this. And what typically happens after a short squeeze, and I don't think it's over with today, is it will end when everybody comes to the agreement that 177 peak a couple of weeks ago in the tenure, that's the high of the year. And that we are now in a new regime for interest rates. And then that's when we start to move to 2% uh, right. is, is, the way, is the way it typically works. And I think that's because the backdrop of the inflation story hasn't changed. We just, the bond market got ahead of itself. Too many people got too bearish on the bond market. And now they're paying a price with this short squeeze. And eventually when things settle out, 
I think that longer term uptrend will reassert itself, but not before they inflict so much pain on everybody that they announce, no, 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 it's all over with now. There's no more new highs in yields for the rest of the year. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, let, let's give a medium term outlook, given what you're saying. So we've got a situation where we have supply bottlenecks. We have the reopening. It's not going to be just the U.S. It's going to be global by the end of the year. And we also have uh, a bond market that is repositioning itself, uh, given and, and this isn't just in the U.S. It's also globally. Uh, we have bond yields going down, given uh, the current backdrop, which was excessively bearish on bonds. So what does that say to you in terms of your asset allocation uh, over the medium term? What do you want to do, given that backdrop? <clears throat> well, the medium term, the story's, the story's going to be a couple of things in the medium term. The inflation story, like I said, I think that we've hit the supply constraints have gone as far as they can, and it's an easy fix with supply constraints, raise your price. But uh, even if they do do that, for the next, say, 90 days to 120 days, whatever happens in the inflation front has got a built-in excuse called the base effect, so that if inflation goes up or inflation goes down, it doesn't mean anything because we knew it was going to go up because there was an inflation, there's a base effect coming and stuff like that. So the inflation story is not going to play. I think it's a second half of 21 story where it's going to where it's going to play. The earnings story. One of the things that um, we, when we look at the earnings numbers, we've been noting that on average, 75% of all S&P 500 companies beat the consensus on the street. That's because it's a game system. Everybody knows that you're supposed to kind of underguess and let the companies beat. So you could say great quarter guys on the, on the report. And then when Larry Kudlow's on TV, he hits his hand on his forehead and goes, oh my God, America's great. 75% of the companies beat. They do every single quarter. And they did even in the great, in the financial crisis, Larry, when everything was collapsing, they were still beating by 75%. So you're going to get good earnings numbers, or you're going to get the perception of good earnings numbers. You get the perception of no inflation. So I think bond yields will continue with the short squeeze Short over the medium term equities, they're not going to have that headwind of a problem with inflation. We're going to keep getting stories every day. Another three million people have gotten vaccinated um, as well. Too the earnings numbers, everybody beats because as or to just say the same thing as I used to joke around. Uh, you know, five seconds before somebody um, uh, reports, I said just say they beat on earnings and they were in line on revenues. Just yell that out five seconds before they report you're right 75. <laughs> you're, you're right 75% of the time. And so as long as we continue to do that, um, you know, it's going to be hard to say that the earnings numbers are going to be a big disappointment. Now, if any of that doesn't come true, um, that maybe the earnings numbers are a big disappointment or maybe the inflation numbers just go somewhere that no one expects, then we'll adjust. But what I'm trying to say is, I think it's, you know, we're 4160-ish or so on the S&P. Here comes 4200, if not higher, over the medium term. And bond yields will continue to hover in the 10-year yields will hover, you know, around 150, maybe a little bit lower. But then the question becomes, once we get past this, then I think we start turning the, tur turning the table on bond yields and they start higher. And then the stock market's got the same issue it's had all year. Okay, bond yields are going up. Is that because of reflation? or inflation. If it's reflation, it's good. If it's inflation, it's bad. And we'll figure out which one it is at that point. 
Very well said. I like the, the uh, you know, the the framing there at the end. Let's, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to wait until uh, that all plays out in June to get you back on. But, you know, at the next juncture that we see how this is playing out, let's uh, revisit this conversation and see where we are then. Sounds good. And good luck with your bike. Thank you. Yes, I need it. <laughs> You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.